Let's take a trip back in time to 18th century Georgia. Imagine driving down a breathtaking avenue of 400 mature live oaks that reach over the road, forming a tunnel of leafy branches and swaying Spanish moss. This oak avenue stretches for a mile and a half after you go through the gates, and as you reach the other side, you will see some of the oldest European-built ruins in Georgia, called Wormslow. What lies beneath? The colonial estate of Noble Jones. This is Jones Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi, friends and Tavophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. Today, for my co-host, I finally got my husband, Brad, to join us. Welcome, love. Hi there. Hi, Shell. Happy anniversary. You know it's our anniversary this week. It is. I wouldn't forget. 22 years in 2022. Does it seem like forever? Nope. Seems like a dream. <laughs> So last week, we talked about Bonaventure in Savannah, and while we were there, we traveled outside of town to see Wormslow Plantation. And I thought it would be fitting to talk about the Joneses. It seems like while we were there, we were always running into Noble Jones and his family. That's right. When we went to Bonaventure Cemetery on the first day, we were driving around in our <laughs> scrawny little rental car. And <laughs> it was scrawny. And you were looking out the right side of the window, and I was looking out the left side of the window. And as we rounded a corner by a bunch of veteran Confederate graves, I looked up for a little bit and saw that we were about to plow into a grave that was sitting in the middle of the lane. <laughs> we weren't really about to plow into it, but I guess it's a good thing you decided to watch the road. I'm known for looking around when I drive, and that can be a problem, but no major problems thus far. Cross your fingers. It just seemed like a strange place for a grave, right? It was in the middle of the road. And we didn't even take time to look at it at that point. We just thought, that's annoying. This grave's right in the middle of the lane. What's it doing there? So I had to back up and do a three-point turn, and we continued on our moseying trip through Bonaventure, looking at the... <laughs> pretty monuments and Spanish moss and ooing and eye. So true. Later on, we had to see who was buried in the road, and it was this Noble Jones. And it just seemed like we kept seeing sculptures and memorials and some kind of historical marker or something <laughs> that had to do with him and his family. And we just kept joking like, oh, hey, it's Noble Jones. We just kept running into that guy. Almost literally. <laughs> it seemed kind of like a sign. So when we learned that it was his historical estate, Wormslow, that we could go visit and was a famous plantation from the time and with the beautiful live oak tunnel that you drive through, we just had to go see it. 
when you get to Wormslow, before you can get out and take a single photo, you must pay your admission fee. <laughs> then after, you can show your ticket and shoot away and drive through the Live Oak Avenue for one and a half miles. You're met by a park ranger who says, stop now, pay your fee, <laughs> don't look, don't take any pictures, don't pass go. That's right. <laughs> That was exactly it. We were just kind of cracking up because we got out of the car and we're looking down the avenue and he's like, stop, you have, before you take a single picture, you have to pay your entrance fee. And we're like, oh, okay, happy to. Then we went and paid, got our ticket and we come back and it's like, stop, you have to show me your ticket. So we're like, okay, wow, this must be a thing that people just want to go take a picture of the avenue and then zoom off and not pay or something. So we did. We we paid and drove down the beautiful Live Oak Avenue. You emerge at the site of one of Georgia's oldest plantations. Wormslow is the only standing architectural remnant in Savannah from the founding of Georgia. The Department of Natural Resources runs Wormslow Historic Site, the former home and plantation of Noble Jones. Wormslow offers us a glimpse into the lives of Georgia's earliest European settlers. The Jones's house, which was really a fort, was constructed of tabby. The tabby ruins of the original Jones house lies nestled within 822 acres of Georgia wild forests, sheltered by peaceful marshes to the east and the south. The Jones family lived at Wormslow in the mid-1700s. There is a museum, seven miles of nature trails, a small museum and colonial life area representing some of the typical outbuildings that would have been on the property and information about the gardens and crops grown at Wormslow in the 18th century. It includes a replica of a wattle and daub hut that simulate a living area for the Jones Marines and slaves and a family graveyard where the Joneses were buried. The Wormslow site is within a dense oak pine maritime forest. Much of the forest originally predated European settlement of the Isle of Hope, but the southern pine beetle infestation in the 1970s killed off most of the old growth pines. Wormslow's main historic significance is that it was the first plantation established by the British in the new colony of Georgia. Brad, will you now tell us about Noble Jones himself? Noble Jones was born in 1702 in Herefordshire in England to Edward and January Jones. He was said to be handsome and a petite man with dark black hair and delicate features. In 1723, he married Sarah Hook. They sailed from England on the good ship Anne with General Oglethorpe, the founder of the Georgia colony, on November 6, 1732, with their two children, Noble Wimberley and Sarah Jones, arriving three months later in Savannah. Jones paid for his own passage, so he was one of the freeholders that were given civic offices and land grants while there were others who came over as indentured servants. These were the people that were part of the original group of colonists in Georgia. Jones was a talented man, a jack-of-all-trades. He was the first surveyor of the colony. Jones hadn't planned to stay in the colony, but soon found himself at home in Georgia and became Oglethorpe's surveyor. Oglethorpe also appointed Jones as the agent for the Indians. He was a carpenter by trade, but I read that he became a physician by assisting the physician on the three-month voyage from England to Georgia. Now, that's a way to uh, get your medical credentials, right? Yeah. As <laughs> Just good get as... thrown in, 
into as the good as any into the fray. He fought with General Oglethorpe in the siege of St. Augustine, Florida, against the Spanish. In about 1737, four years after the founding of Savannah, the Isle of Hope Peninsula was granted to three British settlers, and Noble Jones took the southern 500 acres, and Noble's goal was to convert his acres into a plantation. He was also instructed to erect fortifications to become part of a network of defensive structures established by General Oglethorpe to overlook and help defend the adjacent river to protect Savannah from potential Spanish invasion. On the site overlooking the Skidaway Narrows, the house was one and a half stories high, built inside a fortified wall with a bastion on each corner. It was built of tabby, a traditional concrete-like building material that is a mixture of sand, water, lime, and oyster shells. Much of the oyster shells used to build the house came from shell mounds left behind by from ancient settlements of indigenous people who lived on the site thousands of years earlier. That's really interesting, huh? And you can see the oyster shells in the walls. Yeah. They're not totally ground to a pulp, but there's... No, they're whole oyster shells. So that was really interesting to walk by the ruins and just see pieces of oyster shell in yeah, the tabby. Quite ingenious, using mm-hmm. always what you have. Yeah. Tabby is highly durable. Most of the structures that survive from the earliest days of Georgia colony are made of this material. And I guess that's why the ruins at Wormslow are believed to be the oldest structure on the upper Georgia coast. Crops began to be planted. Some were experimental to see if they could grow in this climate and soil, and some were practical, like, you know, food. They raised cattle on his plantation and also grew mulberry trees. The leaves of the mulberry tree were going to be used as food for silkworms. The trustees of Georgia had great hopes of having the colony be a supplier of silk, but it just was never successful. Also, it has been assumed that the silkworm connection explains the plantation's unusual name, Wormslow, but it actually is a place in the English-Welsh borderland that the Joneses had come from, so nothing to do with worms. Jones began construction of the first house at Wormslow, but he was interrupted by the War of Jenkins' Ear. He was a part of General James Oglethorpe's 42nd Old Regiment of Foot. So he was in the Foot Regiment in the War of Jenkins' Ear. Took a long time to find that ear, 1739 to 1748. That was a long war. Exactly. In August of 1740, Noble Jones was sent to watch the Narrows of Skidaway Island. He was commissioned to the rank of lieutenant and later to captain. Jones came to Oglethorpe's aid again in 1742 when Spanish forces invaded, and it was Jones's scouts who provided vital information to Oglethorpe that led to the Spanish defeat at the Battle of Bloody Marsh. And right behind the ruins of where they had their fort is this marshy area and that skidaway. It's like a big river. I guess when you're from Arizona, it looked like a really large river. Yeah. (laughs) But it had where they had posted Marines out on this island. And so it was a good place to look from kind of the backside of Savannah for anyone trying to invade coming up that direction. Right. It is said that Jones remained friends with Oglethorpe all his life. Jones also served the trustee government 
as captain of the Marines and scout boat at Wormslow, assistant to the president, register of the province, member of the council that reported the state of the colony, and colonel of the regiment. He was a pretty busy guy. That's a lot of titles. After coming back, it took him several years to finish the work on the structure, which was finally completed in 1745. The practice of slavery had been banned by Georgia's original charter, so Noble Jones used indentured servants to tend Wormslow in the plantation's early years. When the trustees revoked the ban on slavery in 1749, Jones then did use enslaved people during the 1750s. Jones initially had planted several types of crops, cotton, grains, various fruits, berries, and vegetables, and possibly indigo. While Wormslow never proved profitable, Jones managed to amass real estate wealth throughout his life, including 5,500 acres and five town lots in the Savannah area. Jones served the young colony in many capacities, judge, militia captain, and colonial legislature. And don't forget Chief Leach Bloodletter. <laughs> Jones also made a start with the landscaping and gardens that would later make Wormslow a byword in the South. He cleared a wide swath of timber and undergrowth on Wormslow's southwestern edge to afford a view of the Bethesda Orphanage, at that time Georgia's largest and finest masonry structure. Noble Jones passed away in 1775. Wormslow passed to his daughter, Mary Jones Bullock which I thought was kind of interesting because he had a son, and it seems like in those days, even if the daughter was older, land always went to the sons. Well, Jones's death occurred just as the American colonies were on the verge of breaking away from England. Mm -hmm. Noble Jones had remained a loyal supporter of King George III throughout his life, though his views and loyalty brought him into direct conflict with his son, Noble Wimberly Jones, because Wimberly was a patriot and a defender of the patriot cause. So it sounds like there was some tension there between father and son. Noble Jones's will stipulated that after the death of his daughter, Wormslow would pass to his son, Noble Wimberly, and thence to Noble Wimberly's heirs forever. It said, to your heirs forever. He was serious about keeping this land in their family forever. We'll have to think about that. You know, you make your will. That's how you do it. You pass it down to one family, and it doesn't seem fair, but that's the way to keep your land intact. Thus, Wimberly Jones inherited Wimslow 20 years later in 1795 upon the passing of his sister. Although we've already mentioned Noble Jones's grave in Bonaventure, he was originally buried at Wormslow in their family plot. This was a very common thing to have a family graveyard on your plantation in those times. At Wormslow, we walked around the ruins of the old home and Tabby Fort structure. It's amazing that there are still walls upright after all this time. Mm -hmm. We then walked down a trail to the family graveyard, and there is a large stone monument and a wrought iron fence to mark the first family burial site at the plantation. Noble Jones was buried there in 1775 alongside his wife, Sarah, and later their youngest son, who I have seen named as Indigo and Inigo. <laughs> wow. Take your pick. I know. So it's kind of confusing. There you go. History. I think it really was Inigo. 
George Wimberly Jones de René, a descendant of Noble and Sarah Jones, had Noble Jones's remains moved to Colonial Cemetery in downtown Savannah. He then placed a monument here in 1875 to mark the family burial ground. Noble Jones's remains were in Colonial Cemetery until the threat of its closing. Then Noble was moved and buried in Bonaventure Cemetery, and only Sarah and Inigo are known to remain at Wormslow. I think that's kind of weird, too, that it says on Find a Grave that Noble's wife and the son Inigo are still buried at Wormslow. Yeah, we didn't have that impression when we went to the family burial yard. Yeah, so that's kind of a mystery still. The monument there at his original gravesite at Wormslow reads, To save from oblivion the graves of my kindred. As is any headstone. <laughs> it seems kind of strange that they moved Noble and not his wife or his son. But as we saw, Noble is in Bonaventure now. You talked about in an earlier episode how there were so many tour guides and tours going on in Bonaventure. This first time we were there at the <laughs> grave, a guide came along with his group, and we felt kind of weird standing there, so we had to come back later. <laughs> we were imposing again. Yeah. It's really a different dynamic to Bonaventure is the groups and tours. There's vans, trolleys, golf carts, with voices calling out all the history they have found their shtick there to be sure. But it's just a little unnerving to be at someone's grave with like this narrator. And they're not indoor voices like regular volume here. But like they're using their big stage voices to help the people in the back here. It's fine. It's just different. And there's a lot of them going on. So you hear all these booming voices around. And especially in the historic district of Bonaventure. Total Shakespearean projection. <laughs> Noble Jones's descendants are buried in Bonaventure as well, right? Yes, they are. Let's talk about his son, Noble Wimberly Jones. As we know, he was born in England and came across with his parents and sister in 1734 on the good ship Anne. He was trained for a medical career by his father, and he did make this his career. His father also set him an example of government service, though as we said, to his father's disappointment, the younger Jones would become an ardent Whig. You could see how this could be a generational thing with Noble Jones coming from England and, you know, and making this colony for the king and for England. But then the son kind of being that younger generation and seeing how it could be different having the ruling be there by themselves and with all the taxation and everything, how he could be kind of more that rebellious it's funny how these huge conflicts separate families. We think of it in the Civil War more with brother against brother and things like this, but it was quite common mm -hmm. during the Revolution as well. You'll recall that Benjamin Franklin's son was an oh, yeah. ardent Tory 
governor of New Jersey that opposed his father. So the generational thing didn't always go to the same direction, but That's it, did, true. it did split families quite often. Yeah, good point. Like his father, Noble Wimberly Jones accumulated thousands of acres of land in the young colony. His planting interests were mainly in rice and brought in a large income. In 1755, Jones wed Sarah Davis, and they had 14 children. And word is that they all survived except for one. That's amazing for the times. Yeah, I'm not sure I've heard very many stats like that for those times. The year he married, Jones began his political career with his election to the Commons House of Assembly, which was the lower house of Georgia's provincial legislature where he would serve until 1775. In the mid-1760s, as you probably know, everything began to erupt over British taxation, like with the Stamp Act. Sir James Wright, the royal governor, would frequently dissolve the lower house. In 1768, Wimberley Jones was first elected Speaker of the Commons House, and this is so cool, he was instrumental in the appointment of Benjamin Franklin to act as Georgia's colonial agent in London to convey Georgia's protests to Parliament there. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah. Also, Noble Wimberley led the Georgia Commons House in its rejection of the Townsend Tax in 1768. Well, you can imagine that Governor Wright viewed Jones as a serious threat to royal authority and he dissolved the Commons House whenever it elected Jones as the Speaker. And what would we expect from the rebel patriots but to elect Jones repeatedly between 1771 and 1773? The intolerable acts in 1774 only increased the resistance to the Crown, and Jones and other Whigs met in early 1775 to form Georgia's short-lived Provincial Congress. It named Jones and two others as delegates to the Second Continental Congress, but there wasn't enough public support and they did not attend. Then, in May 1775, George's Whigs got news of the outbreak of fighting in Massachusetts, and Jones and several other revolutionaries, including Joseph Habersham, John Millage, and Edward Telfair, took part in a mission where they broke into Savannah's Royal Magazine. They seized 600 pounds of gunpowder, some of which may have made its way to the rebels in Boston. Awesome. <laughs> then the next Provincial Congress met in July 1775 and again elected Jones a delegate to the Continental Congress. But his father Noble was dying of a terminal illness and he felt that he must stay in Savannah. But after the death of his father, he served on the Revolutionary Council of Safety. When the royal government collapsed in early 1776, Jones and the Whigs took control of Georgia. And he was actually a member of the convention that created the state's constitution in 1777. And when the Provincial Congress became the House of Assembly, Jones again was elected speaker. Then the British captured Savannah in 1778, and Jones had to escape to Charleston, South Carolina, where he worked as a physician until he was captured along with the whole city in 1780. 
After being imprisoned for a time in St. Augustine, Florida, Jones was transferred through a prisoner exchange to Philadelphia. There he served as a Georgia delegate to the Continental Congress. And while he was there, he practiced medicine. Guess who with? Who? Dr. Benjamin Rush. (gasps) Remember we talked about his story in the episode called Revolutionary Spirit. I remember him. He was a dangerous dude. (laughs) I know. There was some crazy things about him. A few good things that he tried to do, but kind of his way of doing it was... More bloodletting lessons, Mm, right? Yeah, a lot of bloodletting in those days. But it's kind of a crazy tie-in. Wow. So back in Savannah by 1783, Wimberley Jones was elected again the Speaker of the House of Assembly. But the session proved quite disorderly, they said, but it sounds to me like just this giant ruckus or practically a battle. Wimberley Jones suffered a sword wound while attempting to stop a mob, and he had to resign his office, and they moved again to Charleston, where he worked as a doctor for five years. As they say, politics is a contact sport. Oh, wow. Yeah, it really, (laughs) it wasn't these days for sure. In 1788, they came back to Savannah for good. Jones helped supervise the elaborate festivities welcoming President George Washington to Savannah in 1791. In 1795, his last political act was to preside over the convention that met in Louisville to amend the Georgia Constitution of 1789. He continued in his medical practice, and in 1804, he helped organize the Georgia Medical Society, and became its first president. He was ill much of the time in the early 1800s, but despite this, he practiced medicine until his death. He entered his final illness in his early 80s after five consecutive nights of exhausting obstetric cases. And it is said that in Savannah, his death elicited general mourning, as well as numerous eulogies. That sounds like a rough last couple days there. He was the last survivor of Georgia's original colonists and a principal leader in the colony's struggle for independence. 1795 was when he became the holder of the Wormslow estate, although he never really had much to do with it. He died in Savannah in 1805 and was interred in Bonaventure Cemetery. From the book, George's Landmarks, Memorials and Legends, it says, quote, underneath a block of marble at the end of Palmetto Drive, which is in Bonaventure, yeah. rest the ashes of Don't Dr. Don't run into Noble Jones. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Oh, sorry. Rest the ashes of Dr. Noble Wimberly Jones, one of the earliest of the revolutionary patriots. His name was attached to the famous card-calling the Sons of Liberty to meet for the first time in Tondi's Tavern, and he was afterwards chosen a member of the first delegation to represent Georgia in the Continental Congress. But he did not repair to Philadelphia on account of the critical illness of his father, who died a few months later. Dr. Jones first incurred the displeasure of the crown in 1770, his strong Republican sentiments caused him to be deposed from the Speakership of the House of Assembly, but his zeal in the cause of independence know no abatement. 
the grave of the old patriot is enclosed by an iron fence. It likewise fronts the open expanse looking toward Wormslow. The inscription on the well-preserved horizontal slab reads as follows. And of course, they could put more information on a slab than is even thought possible. And it said, consecrated to the memory of Dr. Noble Wimberly Jones, who died January 9th, 1805. He was born in England, came over with General Oglethorpe in the year 1733. At the first settlement of the state, he served as cadet officer in Oglethorpe's regiment during the wars with Spaniards and Indians at that period, acquired his professional education afterwards under the immediate direction of his father, Noble Jones, the friend, companion, and co-laborer of Oglethorpe. I told you this was quite a diatribe on his grave. He was among the earliest and most strenuous asserters of the liberties of his adopted country and filled not only the professional but the most important civil departments with merit to himself and the highest value and satisfaction to the community. The warm friend, the patient, judicious, and successful physician, the most affectionate husband, and a pure and humble and sincere Christian. In the midst of usefulness and vigorous old age, he died as he lived, without fear and without reproach. This monument has been erected by the filial gratitude of his surviving son as a tribute to virtue. This son was named George Jones. I've heard of George Jones. Not the singer. Oh, George. The original <laughs> George. George Jones was born February 25th, 1766, and he didn't turn out to be too slouchy either. Yeah. He became a United States senator from Georgia. He also studied medicine with his father and practiced for a number of years. He also participated in the American Revolutionary War. He was captured by the British Army as a prisoner of war during 1780 and 1781 and was imprisoned upon an English ship. That sounds fun. Yeah. Sounds like Les Mis. <laughs> Here's a few more notable things Noble's grandson did. He was later a member of the Georgia House of Representatives and Georgia Senate. And in the War of 1812, he served as a captain of a company of Savannah Reserves. He was a member of the Savannah Board of Aldermen for three terms and was mayor of Savannah from 1812 to 1814. Goodness, these guys were really into their civil duties, aren't they? Weren't were they were busy. George Jones built the first more elaborate house at Wormslow around 1828, which is the plantation house still standing and they made cotton a stable of that plantation. The two-story timber dwelling built around 1830 measured 20 by 40 feet and faced the water. When George Jones passed away, his son George Frederick Tillman Jones, who lived from 1827 to 1880, inherited Wormslow Plantation around 1857. George Frederick Tillman Jones seemed to have a love for tradition and for his family heritage. He also loved Wormslow. George Frederick changed the spelling of the estate from Wormslow with an O-W at the end to Wormslow with an O-E at the end. He also changed his name to George Wimberly Jones 
before adding a new surname in 1866 to become George W.J. de Rene. Wow. G.W.J. de Rene. Oh, I thought this was sad, that he loved his heritage so much, but he also changed his name. What a mess for any genealogist. <laughs> I know. But even though so proud of his Jones forebears, de Rene chose a new surname that helped to solve the problem of so many Jones relations. Couldn't keep up with the Jones. They couldn't. This would provide him privacy and a distinctiveness at home and abroad. I guess he was always receiving letters meant for his Jones relations and vice versa. All those Joneses, they just kept getting confused and he wanted his own distinction. Traveled a lot to Europe and his children were also educated there. Incorporating the original Wormslow house, he added on and created a spacious three-story residence. It faced north towards the road to Savannah, below which he purchased another 250 acres, adding it to the Wormslow estate. Enslaved people worked in his fields of Sea Island cotton as a money crop and harvested a large variety of edible crops as well, including seafood, poultry, fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Even at a young age, he loved books and collecting them before he reached 21. De Rene purchased 1,300 plus volumes to add to his antebellum library between 1844 and 1861. Most of these were destroyed or plundered during the Civil War, but the catalog shows De Rene mm. had varied interests. Mm. Bet dang Sherman and his Yankee army. <laughs> His section devoted to Georgia history was considered superior to all other such private collections. After the Civil War, de Rene assembled another noteworthy Georgia history library. During the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865, the Confederate authorities constructed massive earthworks at the southern tip of the Isle of Hope, near the ruins of Noble Jones's fortified residence. Federal troops later occupied the area and apparently damaged two of the house's marble mantles along with other acts of vandalism. While the family was abroad during Reconstruction, Wormslow House and its acreage were briefly leased. The government had seized the property of the planters who supported the Confederacy. The property would be eventually returned. De Rene was granted a full pardon by President Andrew Johnson. In the 1870s, the house and grounds were again used by the De Renes, and then mainly as a country retreat from their Savannah mansion. The next Jones heir was Wimberly Jones De Rene. <laughs> Not to be confused with all the other Wimberleys and Joneses. He was the eldest son of Mary and G.W.J. De Rene. It was he who took possession of it in 1893. He oversaw extensive renovations of Wormslow House, as well as improvements to the grounds, and expanded the gardens, and now it includes cattle barns and a dairy operation. Wimberly Jones de Rene became a more noted book collector than either of his parents were. He gathered his Georgia library beginning in the 1890s upon returning to Savannah after spending much of his life in Europe. To preserve his collection and make it easily accessible to scholars, de Rene built a classical fireproof library building near Wormslow House in 1907. Wimberly Jones de Rene produced seven publications, most of which were Wormslow editions, including 
two catalogs of his library. He also printed two of his manuscript collections, the memoirs of Georgia Governor Wilson Lumpkin and previously unpublished letters and telegrams of Robert E. Lee, and was instrumental in publishing several of the Georgia Historical Society's collections. As we've mentioned, probably Wormslow's most famous site is its entrance gate and its mile-and-a-half-long avenue of mossy live oaks, stretching between it and the ruins of the former house and fortification. The trees, of which there are more than 400 that line the road, this was done by Wimberly Jones de Rene. He had them planted in the 1890s when his son was born, Wimberly Wormslow de Rene. Wow, no one's going to get him confused with anything. Nobody else had Wormslow in his name. The arch was erected in 1913, the year he came of age. So the arch is at the very beginning. Like we said, as you come through the gate, it's really this arch. And it has Wormslow in 1913. It's the none shall pass arch. That's right. And upon his death in 1916, Wormslow passed to the grandchildren of George Wimberly Jones de Rene. With Wimberly de Rene's death in 1916, his father's estate was finally settled and his son, W.W., who was Wimberly Wormslow de Rene, he became full owner of Wormslow, having purchased his sister's share in the family estate. The young de Rene, with his wife, Augusta Floyd de Rene, maintained and expanded the gardens at Wormslow creating three interlocking formal gardens to the rear of Wormslow House. When business reverses cost him most of his inheritance, De Rene and his wife opened the estate to visitors in 1927 and called it Wormslow Gardens. It became a popular tourist attraction that rivaled South Carolina's Magnolia Gardens. De Rene had mortgaged Wormslow in 1920 and his sister, Elfrida, took up the mortgage in 1930. She leased the estate to her brother until 1938. And in that year, the De Renes moved to Athens, where Wormslow's Georgia Library became part of the University of Georgia's library collection. In 1930, after the stock market crash, Elfrida De Rene Barrow assumed her brother Wimberly's debts. Is she part of the Barrow gang? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. I'm a long-time listener. <laughs> That's right. And in 1938, Elfrida de Rene Barrow and her husband Craig moved to Wormslow, making the plantation their permanent home. They began by taking Wormslow House back to its formal simplicity, taking off its Victorian additions adding a column two-story portico, double stairs, to the front entry. The gardens were also simplified and were open once a year for touring, helping various charities. Elfrida Barrow created the nonprofit Wormslow Foundation, which published primary and secondary works relating to Georgia history. The first of these was Wormslow, Two Centuries of a Georgia Family, by E. Merton Coulter. In 1961, Barrow donated the bulk of Wormslow to the foundation, 
reserving for her family Wormslow House and about 50 acres surrounding it. The foundation's tax-exempt Wormslow lands were to be used for various purposes related to history, conservation, and education. In 1972, after the Wormslow Foundation's tax-exempt status was revoked, the foundation transferred the ownership of Wormslow to the Nature Conservancy, which in turn transferred it to the state of Georgia the following year. In 1979, the state opened the site to the public as Wormslow Historic Site. Still visible from the Oak Avenue, Wormslow House remains private property, still occupied by the descendants of Noble Jones. You couldn't help but kind of wanting to see the house. It had so much history as well, but you could also understand that they just kind of wanted their privacy and didn't want it to be a big tourist attraction. Why did the damnable IRS revoke their tax-exempt status? How awful. <laughs> How terrible. Spoken by the CPA. It's just un-American. It's un-American. We will post photos of everything we've been talking about today. Wormslow, the family grave site there at Wormslow, the ruins, and, of course, Bonaventure, and all the family graves there on our website and on our social media. So if you don't follow us there, go do it. So Brad, what did you think of the Jones family? I liked the Joneses, and they were a lot to keep up with. They had no reason to change their names because they were the premier Joneses. <laughs> I loved the long Oak Alley entranceway, and I loved the Tabby Fort. That was really impressive. That was really cool. To think how old it was and how well it's held up. I mean, better than Adobe, better than Indian ruins. It was yeah. really impressive. Almost 300 years. And, of course, I always like it when the plantation has the original grave sites. Yeah. That Although we're not nice. really sure who was still buried there. So, Watch for gators. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the river was right there. That's right. It was okay. <laughs> but yeah, that Oak Avenue, that's just really something special. And that's probably why it's so famous, is just that Oak Avenue. It is the main site of what you get to see now. You don't get to see the house. Yeah. But just the fort and the Oak Avenue, and it is breathtaking. Yeah. And it was neat. I mean, there's a nature conservancy, so... They had all kinds of little signs and plaques about different birds and animals that you could see on the trails. There's lots of trails that you could walk through. But don't even look at the Oak Avenue till you paid your admission fee. <laughs> don't even think about it. <laughs> and then, of course, Bonaventure. So that's where we really found him first, was Bonaventure, when we almost running into the Jones. All Oak Avenues lead to Bonaventure. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, honey, for co-hosting today. I know public speaking isn't your jam. Nope. <laughs> but since you were with me on this trip, I just had to get you to co-host at least one episode. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Happy 22nd anniversary. Happy anniversary, dear. There will be many more of these trips <laughs> and shows. Ah, yay. And lots more cemeteries. Hopefully. <laughs> I'm glad that you um, like to go to cemeteries I with me. like me a good cemetery. <laughs> That's good. The Jones de Renee family. Eight generations of people over 300 years of history. 
and descendants still there on the family plantation after all of these years, which I think is rare. And poor Noble finally laid to rest in Bonaventure after being moved twice. We are glad that we kept running into Noble and his family and that we could tell you their story. The story of Wormslow and the story of colonial Georgia. Thanks for listening, my friends. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at Stones, Bones, and Shadows Podcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Imagining herself as the extrovert that she is not. She goes over and over.